A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. I've got a great guest here with me today. I've got Dave Cook joining joining me. I've known Dave for... Uh, Dave, how, how long have I known you? It's been almost 20 years. Really close to 20 years. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a long time. And, and, and Dave is... Um, you know, Dave came out of the sales world. He's, uh, I'll let him tell a story, but, but just an outstanding coach. And um, you know, with all the topics we can talk about today, we're going to continue on our topic of communication. And we'll spend some time talking on listening behaviors and a number of other things. But, um, but you know, first, Dave, you know, where, where we start with our show, I always like a guest to kind of, you know, share a story, share the story of, of, of Dave Cook. Let, let's, let's hear who you are and, and, and what makes you an expert? What, why should somebody even want to listen to you? That's a good question, isn't it? Um, more than anything else, uh, my journey has been, you know, I, from the time I was a first grader, my, my elementary school teacher told my parents I was going to be a great salesperson. My dad was a sales guy, so I always aspired to be a sales guy. And uh, it, I followed that path of being a sales guy, in quotes, of course. But as I, as I have grown into that experience, I have found that uh, sales uh, is just a title. It's more about who a salesperson is and what they do. And when I was in my first official sales job, if you will, was in New York City. And I sold soap, literally sold the soap to industrial laundries and commercial laundries in New York City. And the company that hired me hired me not because of my expertise as a technical guy in the you know in the field of soap, but because of my um, sales acumen, my ability to build relationships. And they dropped me in this highly competitive market in New York City and says, even though this is a consultative sale, and even though people are going to ask you a lot of technical questions, we know that you can figure it out because you can get people to trust you and you can build great relationships. And they were correct. I was uh, quite able in, in my sales experience very early on to say, I have no idea what I'm selling, but I know how to solve problems. Tell me what the problem is, and I will figure out how to get the solution and the answer in context always. I didn't just get the answer, but I got the answer in context. And, you know, I could give you examples down the line, but every one of my stops along the way, that was the key to my success. wasn't really my sales skill, but it was more like my relationship building skills for solving problems. Yeah, it's interesting because um, maybe not so much today, but I remember when, when, I, when I first left the corporate world and, you know, decided to learn a little something and I had to do a different type of sale. It was, you know, the, the selling I was doing back at Big Boy, you had, you know, prospective franchisees coming to you. You didn't actually really have to go out and hunt them. It was more about when they came in, you know, how did you, how did you manage them? And it was all relationship too. But, but I remember one of the first things I did is I signed up for a sales course and it was one of the Sandler training courses. And, and this was back in the day when Sandler was still new. And the concept was not why they should buy your good, but understanding their problem and how to solve it. And that was something you, you actually, did you learn that somewhere or is that something that just came natural to you? Um, it was actually something that came natural to me, and uh, I wish I could say, you know, when I when I you know discovered it. But uh, that when I look at everything that I've done, it was always about just sitting in the space and tell me and saying to somebody, "Tell me what I need to know." And I've always done that. I've done that. You know, I can I can point to times in high school where I just sat with people and we would talk about life in general, and I would start to focus on. Um, understanding them from their perspective and what they were struggling with, what was working, what wasn't working. And then we would talk, uh, we would share ideas through that. And so that's really just been, I know I've been hardwired that way from day one. And, you know, I sat in on a Sandler session probably about the time I had met you some 20 years ago. And the first time I sat in one of those sessions, I go, wow, <laughs> this is the perfect sales training program. All the other ones I always thought before that, you know, it was like the gate frame selling and, you know, all that stuff. And it was, it was all, I felt like it was super manipulative and it was disingenuous. And I loved the idea of, being, of sitting down and saying, okay, what do I need to know about your business? What do I need to know about your struggling, what you're struggling with? 
and how can I help you find what you're looking for? And that's become my life passion. Um, and once I got clear that that was always my life passion. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's really great because, I mean, even I think about how it's influenced me and I look at prospects and not every prospect that I get introduced to um, would be a good fit for the work that we do. So why am I going to go and try to cram it down their throat? And and I will I can think of maybe a dozen times in the last few years where after talking to somebody, I said, you know what, what we have is, isn't exactly what you need and what you're looking for, but I have somebody who can help you. And I make the referral, you know, and those are the same people that when they do need me, they always come back as opposed to going to one of our competitors. Um, you know, it's, it's the relationship. It's helping them first. Um, but there's also a curiosity. Were you one of those super curious kids? Were you one of the ones, dad, why is the sky blue? One of those kind of guys? Or, um, or you know, what was, what was it like for you? <laughs> I don't think that I was curious externally. I was more curious internally. Um, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a very introspective kind of guy. So I think, you know, why do I and how can I? And it's very much about my learning experience. So I don't know that I ask outward, like, why is the sky blue? But it's kind of like, how do I, maybe it's why do I look at the sky and see it as blue? And then analyze it from that point of view. Um, you know, that's, I don't know if that really makes sense to you, but yeah. I, I'm very much of an introspective thinker. Than, uh, than necessarily uh, explore. Yeah, because I, I find that that, um, that, that along with um, a desire to help, I, I think you do have to have a desire to help in order to sell that way. I mean, you know, I don't know. If you think about salespeople in general, you know, we, we hear all kinds of terms, the hunters and the gatherers. And, you know, and I've heard things like... St- you know, what 10% of all salespeople actually are, you know, 90% of our gatherers, 10% of them are hunters. But, but even when I think about the hunters, the ones that are really curious and looking for a solution based sell, what percentage of salespeople actually do that? That's a great question. I think um, the successful ones, a high percentage of them do. And so, you know, when you say what percentage of the salespeople do it, well, if only 10 or 20% of the salespeople are truly successful and a high percentage of those do it, it's like 10% of the people actually are great salespeople in that regard. And the other 90 just happen to have the label on their business card says I'm a sales guy. And you know that would—that's how I would do the math. I'm sure it's cheap algebra, but you get the idea. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so I guess here, here's a question. This is a little, maybe a little bit different than the direction we were starting, but I, I'm curious, and maybe something that can help our listeners. If if you run a business and you're looking to hire, you know, uh, you know, a salesperson, how do you identify whether they have that trait or not? Because if, if especially if they're a good salesman, they're going to sell you that that they should be hired by you. And I've seen so many mishires of salespeople. Um, it's it's crazy. How do how do you weed out the the people that are really a, a good fit from a sales organization for your for your company um, really simple uh, and I think you I think you're already kind of identified it in the way you asked the question there are people that will tell you how wonderful they are and there will people that will show you how wonderful they are and there's a big difference people who tell you how wonderful they are as they have on their resume and their billboard and all the stuff that they're going let me tell you all the things that make me great i've hit my numbers i'm really cool look at the way i'm dressed blah, blah, blah. and it's all outbound let me tell you how great i am a great salesperson will sit there and and have an element of humility to their approach it's more like why what are you looking for why are you looking for it what are your measures of success how do you train coach and develop salespeople? it's a lot of open-ended questions that are, that are exploring what it is you're looking for in the uh, in a successful person in that position and what they're doing is they're demonstrating how they sell um in that with as an effective salesperson as the other person is demonstrating how they sell as an effective salesperson in their mind by telling you how great they are you know which is you know what we all dislike about salespeople, right? Mm-hmm. Here's yeah. the reason why you should buy from me, and we go, I don't, I'm not ready to buy. Yeah, but let me let me overcome your objection and make you want to want this product. Well, what part of I'm not interested? Don't you understand? None of it, because I want you to buy from me. Yeah, I know. I, I get images when I think of some of those those old school salespeople. I, you know, uh, only the older listeners are going to get this reference. But there was a, a sitcom many many years ago, WKRP in Cincinnati, and the the head salesperson, the character, what a great name! It was Herb Tarlick. Yeah. And he always wore the cheesy looking coat and always had his hair done up in a very cheesy manner. And, um, and he was just the epitome of, of the, the last person in the world you ever want to be sold by. I mean, it was just, what, what a great character, but it's, it's a good example of what not to do. Um, yeah, I'm going to ask you one other question on sales, given again, your, your experience, and we'll go back kind of to our other topic, but, um, 
the other the other place I'll find that, that companies will sometimes str- struggle is not so much in the salespeople, but in sales leadership. And I, I do believe it's two different skills. I mean, you've got people who are great on the road, but to take it up a notch and manage those people is a whole different story. And I mean, how many times have we heard the story that you took the best salesperson you had and promoted them and they, they failed as the sales manager? Um, how do you identify the skills um, to put a great sales manager in place? Well, it's, um, I, I like to look at it as analogous to, um, and not everybody likes sports analogies, but, you know, Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan are never going to be good basketball coaches because they understand the game, but they understand, they, they play the game, they understand how to play the game, but they don't understand how to teach people to play the game. Yeah. And we look at um, a lot of the successful coaches, and not all of them, but a large percentage of the successful coaches in the sports world were the guys who were students of the game not participants in the game. They sat on the end of the bench and they studied the game and they understand that piece. And it's the same thing with salespeople. When you're, when you're looking at your sales team, your sales organization, you have your high performance people. They're usually high performance because that's what they do best. They love doing what they're doing and they're really good at it. What you want to find is you want to find in your organization, the salespeople who understand it, but their passion isn't necessarily the execution. Their, their passion is, is understanding the nuances of it and helping other people um, exercise, you know, implement and, and go forward in it. And so you want your, you know, like, like in school, you want your B students as your sales managers and you want your A students to be the salespeople. And because yeah. that's they're the, they're the people that really get it and know how to know how to do it. And the other people are studying it and they grind it out and, and understand. So I always tell them, look at look at the people who are truly studying sales, but just for some reason can't quite be the performance person. But they are great coaches and teachers and mentors and understand process and that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's excellent. That's excellent. So so, you know, you use the word coach a few times and I, I'm, we're going to move down that path here. Um you know, your career took you from selling soap in, I, I, you know, somehow I never knew that. I, I, I could just see I you ever told anybody. Yeah, standing, <laughs> standing with a, a bag full of uh, liquid soap commercial samples. You know, I, a lot of people don't know this, but um, too, but, but at Big Boy, we were a very vertically integrated organization. We actually had our own soap plant for a long time before we ended up outsourcing to Ecolab, which was the company we went to, but we actually used to manufacture our, our soap. And, um, so I have this image of you doing that, but 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 as you evolve from that, I mean, you know, you and I met because you were in the Detroit area. Um, your work took you through a number of sales jobs, but ultimately you made the decision to get out of selling and get on the other side and start consulting companies. What well, what caused that transition for you? Um, well, it's kind of a running joke. The transition, well, as it is with most people, was was uh, less strategic and more forced. So when people say, what caused you to get into consulting is when I was invited to leave my last employer. Um, <laughs> it's so many of us, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I got, you know, I, I remember sitting in the parking lot of when I was invited to leave and I called up my wife and I said, I, as I told you, um, you know, company X let me go today. And she being the HR person that she is goes, um, you had no warning. I predicted it this morning. So obviously I did have warning. There was foretelling this was coming. She said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm not going to work for anybody ever again. That was a commitment that I made to myself. And the reason I, uh, what got me to that point was I realized that um, as I looked at my career, there was always, uh, whenever I was in corporate America, I looked at my career, I could always see where I was going next. I could see the chair that I wanted to sit in or the person that I wanted to emulate and follow their their career path. And I got to a point in my career where I couldn't see anybody in front of me. The only person that was in front of me was me being successful. And that's when I knew that I wasn't meant to work for anybody other ever again. I knew that I needed to trust my journey where I, you know, the, my 20 years of sales experience at that time, that it was time to do something else. Yeah. And, and just as a side yeah. note, it's kind of ironic that life goes full circle. Um, I got my degree in uh, secondary education as a social studies teacher. And I was going to I was going to coach swimming full time and teach high school. That was my plan in life because I love swimming. I love teaching people how to swim and coach that stuff. And I put up with the high school part because it enabled me to coach full time. So it's ironic that at that point in time, I say, yeah, I think I'm going to be a consultant and start coaching business owners. You know, so while I was I became a coach, even though I planned on being a coach my whole life. 
you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, uh, there are so many people get into the consulting world for the same reason. Um, they find themselves between jobs and they kind of, you know, hang their, their shingle, if you will, in a half-baked manner. And they're really just kind of getting side work, looking for the next company they can work for. And when that gets harder and harder, they think, okay, maybe I should do more consulting, but they don't, don't really succeed at it. Um, you know, this is just kind of a little side note for anybody who's considering getting into the consulting business or getting into any business. You have to do it wholeheartedly and you have to do it with intent. And I think that, that you know, the, the number of years now that you've been consulting, and when we come back from the break, we'll talk about that a little bit, but the number of years that you've been in consulting have been successful for you. You've been successful because you did make that decision. This is going to be it. There is no fallback plan. I'm not going to go get another job. I am going to make this work. And, and that level of commitment generated a lot of success. So we're going to take a break. Um, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes uh, with, with, with Dave Cook, and um, we'll talk more about uh, running a successful coaching practice. So stay tuned, and we'll see you guys in just a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit MexicuteGroup.com. That's M-E-X-E-C-U-T-E Group.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Dave Cook. Uh, you know, during the break, okay, just another side story. So we're laughing about the soap business. And, you know, I was mentioning to Dave how, you know, in, in, in my, my previous life, and I mentioned before the break, we had our own soap manufacturing and, and, and it was cheaper until it wasn't. And at that point in time, you know, we ended up, you know, shutting it down, selling it off, and we went to another another organization. But there's another big restaurant operation here in Michigan, um, Zenders. It's in Frankenmuth, Michigan. It's one of the... Dave, it's got to be, it, I mean, they do, I, I forget what the numbers are, but they've got to be the number one, like, chicken sales place in the world. I mean, I, it's millions and millions and millions of dollars a year. It's kind of a touristy place to go. But um, but did you ever try selling in there? No, I didn't. Uh, we sold um, ancillary supplies to them because they made their own soap with all the chicken fat, made their own tallow, which is the the traditional old soap. And so they didn't need to buy soap from anybody, but they needed some other things to, you know, fabric softener and that kind of thing, the starch. And so we sold them other things. But, yeah, they made their own soap in the basement from all the chicken fat. So restaurants, and it's and I, I don't think they do it anymore. I think I heard that they finally, um, I think Echo Lab actually has that business the last I heard. Yeah, probably. Somebody probably call you and correct it, but... Probably, but you know, with all those uniforms, they were cleaning everything. That doesn't surprise me. But anyway, we digress. Let's get back. Uh, so, so you you made this leap into the the consulting business, and you started with sales consulting, and it's it's evolved since then. So, you know, what did it look like in the beginning for you, and what were you training people on? You know, what did a great client look like? What did a failure look like? I mean, I just just share, share some great stories about launching a consulting business. What a, that's interesting. What a great client. Well, I, you know, when you're first starting in the consulting practice, anybody who's going to pay you is a great client. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we're so happy to have that first client. Um, what I learned 
I learned early in the in the game is that there are that any client who's willing to pay you doesn't make them a great client. You learn that the hard way because people that think that they need you doesn't don't necessarily mean they trust you. And so what I've found is that what made a great client for me was when I talked to them and qualified them effectively, understand the problem, um, told them what I thought the solution needed to be. And either they bought it or they didn't. And if we had to negotiate what I was offering, that was a flag to me. And obviously I've learned that over time, but um, so I've learned to, I've learned to say no to business opportunities because they weren't a good fit for me. I've also learned to fire clients that didn't trust me and said, look, we're obviously fighting about process. And if we're fighting about process, that means we're not in agreement as to what I think I need to do as it relates to your business. That's a disconnect on our part, but I'm going to own that. And it's time for us to agree to agree. And those are hard because as a business consultant, you know, um, our revenue rises and falls with clients. And when you walk client or you walk away from a business opportunity what's at risk but there's there's not enough hazard pay in the world to justify keeping on a bad client yeah i have to tell you and you know it 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 hurts in the long run in more ways than you think right i mean because it hurts your reputation you end up not doing as good a work um yeah it's and i have to tell you it, it sounds strange but Firing a client is a very freeing um, feeling sometimes. If it doesn't feel right, don't do the work. And, you know, the other part that I learned is um, be open to your path. Because if I take a look at what, what I did the first year as a consultant versus what we do today in our organization, it's night and day. It's totally, totally different. Maybe same underlying theme. I mean, I haven't, haven't you know, gotten completely out of the strategic aspect, but, you know, moving towards execution, those kind of things. It changes and evolves and you become better. Um, I, I heard a statistic once and um, actually somebody shared this with me who was a um, he was a big time HR and recruiting guy here in the area and and um, he said if you're going to make a go at it as a consultant recognize that nobody takes you seriously for at least five years and then really seriously for at least 10 meaning that the first five years they're, they're not sure if you're just some guy who's looking for another job right or do you have the expertise and then between 5 and 10 years they recognize well you're in this for real and you've you've had some success how you know what's your expertise like and then after 10 years like you're an expert and they really want you to have it but it's amazing what changes in that period of time correct correct i want to, uh, if i could chris i'd like to go back to one thing that you said yeah. um, about getting into consulting in the first place and this is this is probably a story you remember but it's been so long ago that um, i may have to even remind you of it I was three or four years into my uh, venture as a consultant and I had an opportunity to join an organization as a full-time employee. And um, because I was in that five-year, that initial five-year window, I was kind of bumping along financially. I can't say I was killing it. I was doing well, but I wasn't killing it. But this business opportunity to be a full-time employee was like, oh my gosh, this is ideal. It's a company I know, respect, like. I actually tried to hire into them years ago. And I did it. I did it for about nine months. It turned out to be a disaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in the end, I um, in the end, just like I you know, had the same experience, I got invited to leave again. And um, I reminded myself of my commitment that I made the first time I walked out the door. I said, I'm never going to work for anybody again. And I don't know if you remember as a, as a coach at the time, you advised me and said, Dave, you've made this commitment to be a consultant. You know that it's time for you to be a consultant and you know you can't work for somebody full time. Honor the commitment and stay where you are. And and with that advice and that experience, it is definitely something that has kept me on the straight and narrow as a consultant. Once you make a commitment, whatever it is, honor the commitment because there's a reason you made it. So lean into it. Absolutely. And, you know, I I think about what you just said, too. And, 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 you know... I hate to say, I don't think I could ever work for anybody again, you know, and I, and quite frankly, I think if I did, they, they really wouldn't like me very much. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, but as a consultant, um, it gives you leeway to talk a certain way, to act a certain way, to, you know, to, to push, to argue. I mean, one of the values that, that we bring you know, to clients, a good consultant. So Patrick Lencioni, um, one of my favorite authors, wrote a book called Getting Naked. And what I love is is, is when I first heard the concept, I'd heard him speak and um, 
And you said really the concept got, got down to as a consultant, are you really willing to get naked with your clients? You know, are you, are you willing to put it on the table knowing that they could fire you? And the thing is, this thing about a client firing is you just go find another client, right? So I guess it's no different than a job, but, but, um, but I really took that to heart and realized that, that the best compliments I get are when I'm playing the devil's advocate, when I'm pushing, when I'm challenging them, because a lot of times the people that I'm, I'm working with or for, um, they don't get that challenge. They have people who work under them that, that will sometimes just tell them what they want to hear or will just go forward. And, and there, nobody steps back and says, you really think that's going to work? Or that sounds really kind of crazy. I, I'm not sure that's a great idea. And there's a lot of value in that. And, and again, as an employee, I don't know that your boss really would, ex- would want to hear that sometimes. But, but as a consultant, I think you can kind of you can have that more freedom. Right. And I agree with you. I think back to the, you know, ask me what, how I would um, surmise a great salesperson and being a great, being an effective consultant um, doesn't mean I have all the answers. And that doesn't mean that I know I come in, I tell you what I think you need to do. But at the same time, what they're asking me to do is, is look at the organization from a different place. I'm coming from the outside in. Yeah. And as a result, as I'm coming into the organization, I've already, I'm already seeing things that they don't see. I'm already experiencing things that they don't realize they're experiencing. And so when I say to them, here, this is what I'm observing, and this is what the impact it's having on your organization, whatever field you want to talk to it about. Have you, have you considered this? Or here's some things I think we need to start looking at to addressing these so I'm not necessarily the expert at telling you what you're doing wrong. What I am is I air advisor on what we can do differently or better. Mm-hmm. And I have the confidence, like you say, of my experience and my process to um, instill and share this wisdom. But at the same time, the willingness to say, even if they don't like it, that's, that's their call because I have to tell them the truth um, not to be popular, but to be effective. And I have to be comfortable with the outcome of that <laughs> for the same reason. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as life goes on, um, Dave, I, 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 I'm a little envious cause I'm, I'm looking at Dave right now. Of course we, we use zoom, you know, while we're, we're talking here so we can see each other since we can't be in the studio together. And the beauty of technology is we can be in different parts of the world. And I'm looking at snow outside my window and, and Dave's got palm trees, I think, or, or desert or something. Yeah, how, how'd you know that? Yeah. Yes, I'm looking at palm trees in a partly cloudy day, and it's going to be 70 today, but you don't want to know yeah, that. Yeah, you're killing me. You're <laughs> killing me. But, but so your path takes you to, to Phoenix, and along that path as well, you also had a life event that, 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 that took you down a nonprofit path, a, a, a concurrent path. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, we're not getting too personal, but, but, but our, our histories shape who we are. And I think that this was really, this really shaped what you do today. Um, would you mind sharing that story? Sure. Um, it, well, it definitely was a pivotal transformational experience and, you know, uh, I, I'll go as deep as you guys want me to go deep, but, you know, about 15 years ago, 12 years ago, I found out that my um, youngest son, the youngest of three children was, uh, was struggling with a heroin addiction. And we were in Arizona, he was in Detroit, and he was homeless, living on the street and in trouble with the law. And so I started the journey as a, uh, of being a parent with a child with a serious substance abuse issue. And we moved him to Arizona thinking that, you know, we could rescue him and save him on all this stuff. And we found out that there's not enough love in the world to motivate, inspire, and guide a child to their recovery until they're actually ready. You know, I was ready for him to be in recovery from day one, but he has his own journey. We all have our our children all have their own journey. So I learned a very um, humbling lesson about being a parent of of a child in a serious situation. And the reason it was transformational is just that, is is that's one of those great reminders of what we have control over and don't have control over. Mm -hmm. And what I have control over is, the outcomes, not the outcomes of others, but the, but my behaviors. I have control over two things, my attitude and my effort. And so after years, several years of fighting with my son and uh, uh, really shaming him and being hard on him for not embracing recovery, I realized that what I was doing is I was telling my son what he was doing wrong instead of loving my son for who he was. And when I shifted 
that um, behavior. So instead of being the you know, being the dad, I think he needs me to be. I or instead of being the dad, I think I need to be. I started focusing on being the dad that he needs me to be. And when you get down to that, there's only one thing I can do in that situation. Only one thing I have control: how he experiences my love every day, whether he's in recovery or not in recovery, whether he's high or he's not high, whether he's in jail or out of jail. It's like, how does my son experience my love for him? Just my love for him, not shame, judgment, guilt, all that stuff, love. And um, so when I reached my bottom before all this uh, aha moment, um, I made a commitment to ride my bike an hour a day for a hundred days in a row. And every day, the meditational journey of the bike ride created clarity in my mind for who I was and how I needed to shift who I was in the situation. Not what can I do to change the situation in relationship to my son, but what do I need to change to do for myself to change the situation for me? And so that's the, that was the foundation of this whole transformational experience. Um, and then basically what I did, Chris, was kind of ironic, but I um, found myself, uh, started coaching parents on this whole process. And the more and more that I was coaching parents on how to be the parent that they needed to be for their child, what I was teaching them to do was teaching them to sell. Yeah. Basically, instead of, instead of solving the problem, as I see it, telling them to buy from me, telling them to get in recovery, it was more like, what do you need from me that, I can, that will support you in your, in your struggle? And so then I became the, I taught them to be the consultative parent, not the demanding telling parent. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, it, it just completely changed my life. Yeah. It, it's a great example of life skills that transfer everywhere. Um, somebody once said that, that you're always selling. We're all always selling, whether it's personal or professional, that's just what we do. Um, so it's, it's kind of an interesting um, path. And so you created the, the, the nonprofit hundred pedals, um, which, which supported parents in, in, in the same, in similar type situations. Where, where's your son today? How, how are things? Uh, my son uh, is here in Phoenix. He actually still is living with us. He's been um, in extended recovery for over two and a half years. And he did a lot of, he did a lot of hard work. And that's one of the things that parents need to learn, you know, um, is, is recovery isn't just giving up the drug, you know, whatever it is giving and whatever we're addicted to, because it isn't, yeah. isn't abstinence. It's the hard work. What's, what's causing me to do this? You know, what's causing me to gamble or have a sex addiction? What causes me to be abusive? What causes me to do drugs? What causes me to drink? It's understanding the, the what I'm, what's causing the behavior. What's the underlying issue? When we learn to deal with that, we treat the cause, not the result. The result is the drug. Yeah. Is what causes us to use, you know, what leads us to the drug, how it manifests itself. And so, watching my son do the incredible hard work on his recovery, I've developed a whole new respect for people in recovery because they do that gritty, hard, deep internal work on themselves that most of us would run the hell away from. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding there. And, you know, you've used the word behavior a number of times. And we've talked a lot on this show um, in, with past guests about the importance of self-awareness and understanding behaviors and recognizing behaviors in others. Um, so what I'd like to do, we're going to take another break here for a few minutes, but <clears throat> when we come back, um, let's uh, let's talk about behaviors and, and some of the behaviors that, that again, so again, these experiences have now shifted what you do today. And the coaching you're doing today is, I think, of all the years I've known you, some of the most powerful stuff. And and I'd love to get into it and, and really the, the skills of listening, the behaviors of listening. So stay tuned, everyone. When we come back with, with Dave, we're going to get into, um, into some really, really good behavioral stuff. We'll be right back. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. 
For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. We're back one last time with Dave Cook. So, Dave, when we, when we broke, we were talking about um, behaviors, and we talked about the importance of recognizing behaviors and, um, and how they affect us and, and others. You know, there's a, certainly an, an emotional intelligence piece of it that even comes into play as I think about behaviors and awareness of others. Um, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about your, your current coaching, because the, the stuff on listening that you do is really... It's it's unique from from my experience anyway. I mean, I don't know anybody else that's done it. I mean, we've all had people who tell us, you know, uh, you know, all the different skills of listening, if you will, the tactics. I think is a word that you utilize. The tactics of of listening. You know, oh, you know, you know, use the affirmative nod. Repeat what they said back to them. You know, those kind of things. I mean, we've all heard that stuff. But but you take a completely different approach, and I I, I want to explore that a little bit. So uh, I don't want to give give away too much, but share share that approach uh, with our listeners and let's let's talk about what they can what they can maybe put into play right after listening to this show okay um because there you know every every consultant has to have a brand i did i did label the listening so we could understand what it is but um uh, i call it selfless listening and to help you understand selfless listening as opposed to you know other things selfless listening the exact opposite the polar exact opposite of selfless listening is selfish telling and so let's start there with selfish telling selfish telling is just that it's about me telling you what you need to know and so i look at the world from my point of view with my opinions my experience my values my background and i tell you how i see the world and when I listen to you in that time, if I'm if I'm in that selfish telling mode, I'm listening to what you say and filtering it through my values, my beliefs, my goals, my expectations. Therefore, I'm not hearing what you're saying. I'm actually judging, criticizing or critiquing what you're saying. If we go into a selfless listening mode, what I do to the best of my ability is wipe the slate clean. And I wipe the slate clean saying, and especially I'm looking at you on the Zoom call, Chris, is that I'm looking at you says, what does Chris see? What does Chris experience? What does Chris believe? Why does he see, believe, and experience of that? How does that influence his decision-making? Um, Brene Brown call, calls it curiosity. I, I say to myself, it's not what I know. It's let me find out what I don't know. It's not what I believe. It's find out what, what other people's truths are. Because when I do that, I am allowing myself the space to freely learn from them without any impediments. The only impediment is I have to release of myself. That's why it's called selfless. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what we focus on is, is sitting in the space and saying, Chris, tell me what I need to know. And building the trust of creating a safe, that safe place for them to share because people will say, okay, what are you up to? Because we're used to being judged and criticized. We're used to being told we are wrong. And um, so the idea being, and this is definitely what I learned with my son, my son coming home high doesn't make him wrong. It means that he's in pain. Do I greet him in pain with my judgment and criticism or I do create a place for him to say, even though I'm in pain, I can experience my dad's love. So same thing, but in the business environment, if I'm working with an employee who's struggling to trust me because they feel like I'm judging and criticizing and condemning them, they're not going to tell me what's going on in their life. They're not going to share with me the perspective of their experience in the office. They're going to be reluctant. But if I could learn to create a space where I say, I, you know, I'm concerned, I'm committed, what do I need to know? And then you sit in that space and listen until they're done talking. So 
you know, what I'm hearing is, is that this is a, this is the problem is, is that this is a programmed behavior in some regards. I mean, I don't know when we start learning it, but this concept of selfish telling, I, I, lo- I love how you put that. Um, and being on the other side of that, you know, the, the, the behavior of accepting and expecting to be talked to that way, that's a program behavior. When does that all start? Does it, it probably starts at a very young age. Well, it does start, you know, think about it, even the, even the best of parents, um, we, you know, we, people, we've learned this in sales, nobody likes to hear no. Why is that? Because our parents will say yes and no. They'll have right and wrong. They'll have good and bad. We go to school, we have the same thing. The teacher has the right answer. So when we come up with an answer, and if it's not the right answer, what is it? It's wrong. And so we learn that everything in life has some subjectivity to it. And that we're just, we expect that subjectivity. And what happens is, is that it denies us the freedom to explore unless we rebel it unintentionally, because I don't sound saying this is incorrect, but it's just an un- unintentional byproduct of the the teaching culture that we have is that we think the other, there's rules. There's the way the game has to be played and whoever's in charge of the game, those are the rules and we have to operate inside of it. And it, it does create um, some limitations and some fear and resistance and all that other stuff that gets in the way of us freely expressing ourselves. So being a program behavior, that means we've got habits around it. And the longer standing a habit is, the harder to break. How, how do you begin breaking that cycle? How do, how, do you, how do you get somebody aware that they're even doing it? Um, which one, the, 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 the teller or the listener? <laughs> both, really. I mean, let's, let's tackle them both because I, because I think you have to work on, I would think you, every person has to work on both sides of this to some degree. Yes, it does. And I guess the, if I, the reason I ask the question is kind of a smart aleck to ask, but the, the truth is from a leadership point of view, the leader has to go first. The reason the leader has to go first, and you talked about this, was being um, being naked, you know, being authentic, being vulnerable, being transparent. Okay, those are things that say, look, you know, um, the, the, a lot of times when I'm coaching uh, my clients, especially from a leadership point of view, a leader, we all say leader has certain behaviors. There's certain things, you know, styles and behavior. When we do that, what we're doing is to say, for me to be the leader, I need to be. And what we do is we create a coat, a jacket, a uniform that we put on in order to be the leader. And instead, what, what a leader really needs to be is a leader needs to be who they are. And so I need to be, I need to be, I need to trust that my personality, how I was, how I was wired and my goals and my values and my aspirations for who I am is who I am. So the first step in being a great leader to create a place for people to you know, be willing to share their story is you need to be authentic with them, that they realize that you're trusting them mm-hmm. with the authentic you. So I'm going first. I'm being naked in front of you using your thing earlier. The guy, when the person sitting across said, holy crap, you know, Dave's, I can tell Dave's being honest with me. He's being transparent. He's being vulnerable. He's, there's no, there's no hidden agenda here. With that, I'm creating that space then for them saying, please let me, please trust me with, please, excuse me, please trust you with me. Yeah. So, yeah, I think so. I, I, I think I understand it. So, um, you know, and I guess the part that I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking through right now, uh, maybe struggling a touch is I'm, I'm looking for that, that moment that triggers. So what would be, you know, you know, uh, for, for any leader out there that's in this position that might be, um, you know, have, have a habit of selfish telling, maybe even with the best of intent. I, I, I think people typically have good intent, but they're unaware of how the behavior is um, affecting others around them. Susan Scott, for instance, in, in her book, Fierce Conversations, once said one of the principles is be aware of your emotional wake. And yet a lot of people aren't really aware of that. You know, and, and we could probably say behavioral wake to some degree as, as well, that, that our wake can mess things up. And so if, if, if you've got a leader who, let's say, has never heard of any of this stuff, you know, he's learned some of the tactics of active listening, but, you know, maybe it's not... not uh, you know, positively helping him out, what would be, what would be the trigger? What would be the, the thing that, that, that somebody should recognize and say, you know what, I, I have to pause. I, I should rethink my approach here. I, maybe, I, maybe I'm the problem. That's a great question. And the, the, the simple answer is um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a t- it's a barometer. It's a test. Just like you said, when I'm getting ready to lean in and say something, um, the barometer, the, the test is, is this for me? Is it for them? Is this for me or is it about them? 
because if I want to tell you something, I go, yeah, I want to, I really need to tell Chris, I go, okay, what's my motivation for something? Is this something that I feel like he needs to know? Or is it something that, um, that, uh, I don't understand or something that I don't know that I need to understand first before I tell him what I see. And so that's the idea is the, the question is what don't I know before I tell? And if I'm leaning in and just telling him because I want to get it over, I just want to tell him just, you know, he needs to know that's being selfish. If I go and say, I'm seeing this behavior that I'm not sure about, or he keeps making mistakes at work, or there's a, there's something going on. It's a, it's like, what do I need to know that I don't know already rather than what do I need to tell him to fix it? Got it. Got it. But again, does require a level of self-awareness. I mean, we, we all know those leaders that, um, well, I, I don't know if I'd use the word leader sometimes with some of the people I'm thinking about, but we know those people <laughs> in leadership positions um, that really, you know what, they're going to be in tell mode that they're, they're, you know, and that's just who they are. That's their personality. And they really couldn't give a crap. Sorry about it, but they really couldn't give a crap about what other people think or feel or whatever. And this is just how they're going to run their company. Um, I met one of those actually recently and uh, somebody I decided not to, to, you know, provide our services to because really he just wanted me to get up there and validate everything he was telling everybody to do. And it was too big of a company to not trust your leadership team. And, and the guy could not understand why he was having so much turnover at his leadership <clears throat> level. And, you know, I, and when I talked to him about it, about, you know, he could be part of the problem. That was kind of the end of our conversation, right? I mean, some people just don't want to be aware. Have you experienced that? Yeah, um, definitely. And again, it, it, it just goes back to receptivity. Um, yeah, and you have this experience. I have this experience as a consultant. Some people aren't going to get it. Some people will get it when they're ready. It's just like recovery. Um, so I, I accept that my message doesn't resonate with everybody. But but the, the challenge is, is that uh, when I sit in the space with somebody, it, it just goes back to the it's problem solving. And I, I uh, again, you know, I don't want it to sound like, you know, there's a there's a process, but there are some things that I've just recognized as a pattern in my conversations with people. What's going on? Why is this a struggle? And how do you envision fixing it? So when I was and when I'm talking to a stubborn person, it's OK, so what's your, what's the problem? Well, you know, for some reason, I just can't keep it. People. Well, why do you think that's happening? Da, 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 da. OK, so how do you envision fixing it? And they say, da, 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 you know, whatever it is. It's like, OK, good. Let's go out and see. Um, what is that going to fix, solve, or correct? Why is that going to fix, solve, or correct it? And how do you imagine imagine implementing it? I just stay in that loop. And notice that all the questions that I'm asking are open-ended questions. Mm-hmm. Everything that I'm doing is exploring. I just keep going inside, deeper and deeper inside their head. At some point in time, two things are going to happen. One of two things are going to happen. The individual, like you found out, is going to cut it off and say, you don't have time for this crap. <laughs> right? Or the other person is going through the course of the conversation, recognize a speed bump or a wall that they just hit. And they go, oh, wait a minute. What are you trying to say? I'm not trying to say anything. What did you just say to me? Well, I think that I, and then now what you've done is you've helped them see um, the world as, you know, from a subconscious point of view, the world that they didn't see. Yeah. Uh, Now we can say, okay, good. Now that we see that, how do we, how do you envision navigating through that? So that's how I solve problems. You know, some people don't want to have a problem solved, but some people recognize, um, discover the problem through the course of the conversation that they trip over their own feet and say, oh, my gosh, I need help. Yeah. And and so, you know, obviously, you know, if you're a leader of a company and you're finding that uh, you feel like communication just isn't right, some self-reflection is a good place to start. And, um, you know, and, and ask others, you know, we talk a lot about vulnerability and you mentioned vulnerability a couple of times. Um, great leaders are willing to be vulnerable. Sometimes there's a place to sit down with, you know, the people who work for you and say, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? What could I be doing better? You know, you know, you know, you know, get, you know, do like a verbal 360, you know, am I communicating with you? Right. Do you, you believe I'm hearing you? You know, but these are tough questions. We have to set our egos aside. We have to be willing to hear it. And yet, if we do, we'll be better. We'll be better. Well, and it's interesting. One of the nuances that, and I and I um, picked up this this behavioral nuance working with moms and dads. But I, but something that I've driven into my into my coaching culture is eliminating the words of right, wrong, good, and bad. 
And so what we really focus on is what I'm doing, you know, what's working, what's not working and what I'm doing and what could I do differently or better? Because uh, I, I firmly believe at, at a core is that we're all doing the best that we have, the best that we can with what we have. And you know, we can't do we can't do the best of what, what, that what we, we can't do the best that we can with what we don't have until we have it. And then we improve. That doesn't make us wrong because we don't have it. It just means we haven't had it yet. So that's the discovery. Says, oh, good. And, you know, because a lot of times parents, when I coach them through, will say, oh, I guess I've been doing it wrong all along. Time out. You didn't have this knowledge, insight, or wisdom a year ago, so you didn't do anything wrong. Now, in the in the with the gift of awareness and opportunity, what are you going to do differently or better? And it frees us up from that self judgment because, as you know, I don't know about you, but I'm you know, the guy I brush my teeth with in the morning is my biggest critic. Man, he is so hard on me; it's brutal. Yeah. And so I try to find ways to encourage him to go easy on me. <laughs> <laughs> So that I can find ways to be comfortable recognizing um, the opportunities for growth and improvement. Oh, that's outstanding. And, you know, I, I, I feel like we're just getting started. I've got 20 other questions and we're already <laughs> to the end of the show. I mean, I can't believe how fast sometimes this goes. Um, you know, so uh, again, if, uh, if, if possible, maybe we'll, have, we'll continue this conversation onto another show at some point. Sounds good to me. I would love it. Yeah. So, so Dave, thank you for, for coming and being with us uh, today. If, you know, if any of you are interested in getting a hold of Dave, a couple of things. Uh, one, you know, you're certainly welcome to contact me through the Voice America website. And the email is listener at transformativeexperts.com. You can also find me at my, at my personal, my author website, which is uh, chriselliasauthor.com. And you can connect, connect with me through there. Dave, um, Dave, what's your website? Spell it. Oh, this would be good. So the website is um, The Cook Group LLC. And the key to that whole thing is the cook E, cook has an E on the end. So if you do The Cook with an E on the end, LLC.com, you can find me. And my email would be Dave at The Cook Group LLC. Excellent. Yeah. So if anybody's ever interested, you know, uh, certainly there's lots of ways we can, we can get, get you connected with Dave. Um, I'd love to hear from you. If you got good feedback for the show, track us down. Thanks for listening this week. And I look forward to having everyone with me again next week. We've got another good one coming up. So stay tuned until next week. Take care. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of transformative experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.